Would you all turn to Mark chapter 3? Uh, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 3 this morning, and we'll be reading verses 13 through 35. So I know that's a lot, but it's a good, it's a good story, and we're going to work through it. And uh, so just try and pay attention as we read all of this. Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 35. Okay. So it says this, And Jesus, he, he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul. And the prince of demons, by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. And he called them to him, and he, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside they said to him and called him, They sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Our Holy Father, we are grateful for your word to us and your presence with us. Give us ears to hear you speak and hearts to believe and embrace your Son who is the way and the truth and the life and in whose glorious and gracious name we pray. Amen. Okay, so I want you to notice two responses to Jesus in this story. They're found in verses 21 and 22. In verse 22, the response of the scribes, uh, when, how the scribes response, uh, respond to Jesus and how Jesus' own family responds to him. Okay, so the scribes, they see what Jesus is doing and saying and claiming about himself, and they assume that he's uh, evil, that he's corrupt, that he's in league with the devil. And then Jesus' own family hears about what he's doing and saying and claiming, and they assume that he's lost his mind, that he's crazy. And these two responses are actually pretty understandable whenever you uh, consider the incredible claims of Jesus. 
Pastor Tim talked last week about Jesus claim, claiming to be bringing the kingdom of God and teaching with authority. He's saying, I am your king. He's walking around earth like he owns the place. And the things that he says and, and are very different than what any other teacher says. He, I mean, other teachers say, this is the truth about the universe and this is the way you ought to go. But he says, I am the truth. I am the way. I am the life. He says, no man can reach ultimate reality except through me. He says, uh, try to retain your own life and you'll inevitably be ruined. But give yourself away and you'll be saved. He says, all authority in heaven and earth is mine. He who hears my words and does them is like one who builds his house on the rock. A wise man. He who doesn't, who hears my words and doesn't do them is like a fool who builds his house on the sand. He says, your sins, all of them, I can wipe those away. I am rebirth. I am life. He says, don't be afraid. I have overcome the world. These claims are so wild and extreme that you can't just think, of him as a great human teacher of love and peace, like so many say. You have to reckon with these claims about who he is. And if you refuse to believe them, then the only other conclusion is that he's either self-deceived or he's deceiving others. Put another way, he's either corrupt or he's crazy or he's king. He's either corrupt or he's crazy or he is the king that he claimed to be. C.S. Lewis makes this, famously in his, this argument famously in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. And that's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him, his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. And in this chapter of Mark, there's these two groups of people who uh, were not willing to accept Jesus' claims about himself, his family, and the scribes. And notice which way each of these groups went. Remember, you only have these three options, corrupt, crazy, or king, when you're confronted with his teachings. And if you refuse to recognize him as king, then you're left with corrupt or crazy. But if you know him personally and intimately, like, say, his family, then you know him to be the most upstanding, honest, and righteous person that you've ever met. So you know he's not corrupt. So you're left with only one option, that he's crazy. And notice that's exactly what his family thought. 
But then on the other side of things, if you're well-versed in the Scriptures and wisdom and teaching like the scribes were, and you know that this man is too brilliant and wise to be a crazy person, then you're left with the other option, that he's corrupt. And notice that's exactly what the scribes thought were claiming. But if these two groups could have filled in the gaps for each other, and his family could have told the scribes, oh no, trust us, he is not a liar. He is the purest and most compassionate and honest person you'll ever meet. And the scribes could have told the family, well, trust us. His preaching, his teaching, his leading is too powerful, brilliant, and wise for him to be a lunatic. Well, then they would have been left with the truth. That he is clearly not corrupt. He's clearly not crazy. He is the king of heaven and earth. He is God become human to do for humanity what we cannot do for ourselves. The divine king here to reclaim his good world. And this is good, good news. Because the same Jesus who walks around like he owns the place and summons people to follow him is the same Jesus who is the compassionate, gracious one who is constantly looking for the outsider and for the ones that are down and out to bring hope and healing into their lives. These aren't two different Jesuses. They're the same Jesus. Because He is here to to call us to a new way of being human. He's here to to expose the ridiculousness and the, the pettiness and the pride of our own little kingdoms that we form in this world. And He's forming a new kingdom, a new group of people who will lay down their kingdoms and submit to Him as King. And as you do that, As you submit to this king and this kingdom, you find life. This is what it looks like when Jesus takes over as king and ushers in the kingdom of heaven on earth. This is the kingdom of God that Jesus is talking about. The kingdom of God is the kingdom is is God reclaiming his world in Jesus and forming a people who are going to live under his reign as king. And that's what we see in this chapter. Jesus is forming a new people. Look at verses 13 and 14. They say this. And he went up on a mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. Okay, now I know most of us aren't steeped in the Hebrew Scriptures the way Jesus and the Jewish people of his day were. But if we think about the story of the Old Testament, we should see that Jesus is doing something significant here. Why is it significant that Jesus appointed 12? Why not 11 or 13 or 10 like maybe I would have done? Why is the number 12 significant to someone who is claiming to be the Jewish Messiah? Twelve was the number of the tribes of Israel. Moses went up into a mountain, called the twelve tribes together, and constituted them a nation. This was the people God called to himself to submit to his reign and be his representative and blessing to every nation. And if you read that story, it didn't go so well, right? They failed. And now Jesus, the Messiah, comes up to a mountain and calls 12 to himself. It's his way of saying, I'm creating a new people, a new humanity, a new community. 
He's saying, let's reboot and start this story of Israel over again. He forms this nucleus of his new people of God around himself. He calls them to reorganize their their life, their priorities, their, their identity, their values in unity around him. Now, Jesus didn't just come to forgive individual sins. That's an important part of what he did and is doing, but it's part of a larger story of him forming a kingdom full of his forgiven and redeemed people who are united by their allegiance to King Jesus. I love uh, this a pastor and author named Sam Albury says this. He says, it's impossible to be in Christ and not belong to others. A Christian, by definition, has a connection with and responsibility to other Christians. You cannot claim Christ and avoid his people. In our day, many Christians have no problem disengaging from the local church life and going instead for a like me and Jesus type of faith that rarely interacts with the, the uh, commitments and complexity of real, genuine com- community. And I, there's been times in my own life when I've gone this route and disengaged. During culinary school, which is another story for another time. But I was living away, and I attended uh, a couple different churches, but never really got involved to the point where my absence on a Sunday would be noticed or missed. And I was happy to come when I felt like it slip in late, sit anonymously in the pews, enjoy a sermon, sing every once in a while, maybe grab a quick coffee or donut on my way as I quickly walk back to my car. And I can, I can really relate to people, who, to the many people who choose this sort of relationship at church. But I can tell you that as I look back on those times in my life and when I chose to live like that, I gradually slipped into loneliness and depression spiritual immaturity, and various types of sin, often without even realizing it. And I was no type of witness to the power and presence of Jesus. So I empathize with people's frustrations with churches and the often weird and bothersome types of people who are a part of them. But the Christian life cannot be an individual affair. The church, by definition, is a people. The Apostle Paul says we are the body of Christ. So to say you love Jesus and not the church is to say you prefer a decapitated head. And that's creepy. (laughs) And weird. A head needs a body, and a body needs a head. Yes, many aspects of salvation are experienced individually, but just as true is the fact that Jesus died and rose again to create a new community whose members belong to each other and to him in love and, and love one another and serve the world together. So I want to look at what it means to be a part of this new community, this new people, what it looks like to live under the reign of this king together. And there's these three pairs of corresponding ideas that I want to draw out from this chapter that we are with and sent, that we are free and family, and that we are a community that is repenting and following. So uh, these are in the sermon notes portion of your bulletin as well. With and sent, free and family, repenting and following. Okay, so let's start by looking at verse 14, which we already read, but look at it. It says, And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. So Jesus calls us to be with him and sent by him. 
as he calls a new people, it's first and foremost that they might be with him so that he could have a relationship with them of, of love and partnership and communion. I had a friend who pointed out to me a couple years back a, a, a subtle shift in thinking that really affected how I think and live. He said that we are not primary to, primarily to li- designed to live for God, but to live with God. And God wanted to make this so clear that he named his son that. Emmanuel, God with us. I think this is so important because we can get caught up in living for God and fall into like a checklist type of, of living, trying spirituality where we try to make ourselves good for God and do a lot for God. And we, and, and we can start to think or even say if we go far enough down this path, well, I do a lot for God. And then we miss that close, intimate relationship that he has and that he desires to have with us where we're speaking to him and hearing from him and responding to him and enjoying him and being changed by him and and communing with his people and his spirit who is is among us. And we start start thinking of of living with God, then we get caught up in what he is doing in this world. So it's from this position of grace and relationship and acceptance that we go into the world as his sent one. And that's what the word apostle means here. When he named these men apostles, he was naming them, giving them a new identity as sent ones. What does it mean to be sent? Well, well what do we send? I was thinking about this. What do we send today, you and me? We send letters. We send text messages. We send emails. We send messages intended to be read. And I think this is the idea of being sent. You are a living letter. And Paul actually says this really beautifully in 2 Corinthians 3. Listen to this. 2 Corinthians 3, 3. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. I love this. You, your very life is a letter. You were created to receive and send a message intentionally into the lives of the people in your life. God is the great sender who has delivered his message to us and then writes his message in us and through us for us to deliver to others. He sends us. We are his letter of love to the culture around us, to the people he loved enough to die for. And this sentness must be tied with our withness. We are sent by Jesus with Jesus. He makes this clear whenever he rose from the dead, you remember, and he gave his commission to his sent ones to make disciples of every nation in the world. And he made sure with that commission, he gave them a promise. I am with you always. Jesus saw it as pivotal that we are both with and sent. When Jesus was called Emmanuel, God with us, it's because he is both the essence and the embodiment of what God wanted to communicate to the world through his living word, Jesus. So if we hope to communicate this same message to those with whom we connect in real life, then Jesus must be central and noticeable in the daily rhythms of our activities and relationships. Paul says that we're ambassadors for Christ. 
representatives of our king, which means that our homes and our churches are embassies of the kingdom of God. A kingdom ruled by one who is the embodiment of love and grace, but who is also powerful to deliver people from the tyranny of evil and welcome them as full citizens, as more than that, as family. Which leads me to my next pair of points. That this new people Jesus is forming is free and family. In verse 22, the scribes accuse Jesus of being in league with the devil, which is a pretty strong claim. So Jesus calls them over and he speaks to them in parables. And he, he describes this world as a kingdom do, dominated by a strong man, by a, a, an evil prince, a warlord. And he says that a general never wins a battle by attacking his own troops, so the devil isn't doing that, of course. So what is happening? So then Jesus likens this world to this, this strong man, this evil warlord's castle, his house. And humanity is held captive inside. And Jesus says, I am stronger than him. I am mightier than him. I have come to bind the strong man and plunder his house. I have come to tie up that evil warlord and set loose all of his captives who will follow me out. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul says that Jesus did this very thing. He says in Colossians 2.15 that on the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Or the way Jesus would say it is that he bound the strong man and plundered his castle. He freed for himself a people that would no longer be ruled and dominated by spiritual evil. They would no longer be ruled by the ways of the kingdoms of this world, enslaved to sin and selfishness and pride and approval and their own appetites. See, both Jesus and Paul, they have this deep conviction that that the great evil in our world can't be explained merely by human decisions. They believe there's a real realm of beings who influence and speak lies to humanity to destroy us. And just so you see what Paul is saying here in this passage in Colossians, Paul describes spiritual evil in two main ways. When he talks about you as an individual giving into evil to these dark spiritual powers, he usually describes it as Satan or the devil. But when he talks about whole cultures or tribes or societies being distorted and led into evil, he uses the language of powers or rulers and authorities. And he says that on the cross, Jesus disarmed these powers and shamed them through his radical victory and triumph over them. And one of the main ways that spiritual evil and the devil distorts and leads whole groups or cultures into evil is through pride often cultural pride or tribalism or hatred or fear of people who are different. Earlier in Colossians, Paul calls this the domain of darkness. And he says that in Jesus, God has delivered us from that domain of darkness and transferred us into a new kingdom, the kingdom of the beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And this redeemed humanity, this new people that Jesus is forming, is freed from that domain of darkness. And when this happens, all of a sudden, our differences still often exist, but the most important common denominator is not your skin color, it's not 
what music you like. It's not the, the size of your jeans. It's not anything like that. It's purely faith and trust in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. And this allows us to live in unity and love and peace with others, even those who are different than us. And when we experience this freedom that Jesus secured for us, it, it, we have, we're united with others who have this freedom. And we've laid down our various kingdoms and been freed from the reign of their tyrannical kings. And we now share a common allegiance to a new king, a better king, a king who welcomes us into his palace as co-heirs with him, as family. So the new community of Jesus is freed from the domain of darkness and to a new family. That's what Jesus says in Mark 3, that these people around him who are following him, he says in verse 34 and 35, they're, they're his family, a family that is more real to him even than his own flesh and blood family. And if we are a new family, you don't get to pick the members of your family, unfortunately, right? The, the, the reality of God's family is that people have different backgrounds and personalities and opinions, and they will clash, and it will be messy. And it's a huge challenge committing to a family like this. But it's not optional. In Jesus, we are adopted as sons and daughters of God because we, through our faith, we are united to the Son of God. And adopted sons and daughters don't, of God can't just throw in the towel and retreat to our cliques and our just-like-me friend groups. We must learn to lean in to this awkward conglomeration of people who make up the church. And often, people have been burned by the church or have grown weary in trying to engage. But I just want to say, be patient. Be patient. The devil no longer reigns, but he still attacks. And Christians are not magically made perfect when they are brought into this new family. But it is, in fact, the family itself, just like every family you're familiar with, that, that is the means of making us more like our father and like our elder brother. So be patient. I love what D.A. Carson says. He says the reason there's so many exhortations in the Bible for Christians to love other Christians is not because it's easy, and it's, not, it's, not, it's because the church is not made up of natural friends but of a natural enemy. What binds us together is not what binds together any other human community. Every other human community is bound together by common interests, common education, common race, common income level, common, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, things like that. But Christians come together not because they form a natural collocation, but because they've all been saved by Jesus and owe him a common allegiance. So it takes time in a community like this, but, it's, but your heart needs it. And Jesus is present and powerful to make us into a loving family as we commit to one another as family. And because this family is made up of imperfect people, we must continually be repenting. Which leads me to my final pair of points. This new people Jesus calls into being is one that is continually repenting and following Look at verses 28 and 29. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Okay, all clear? 
So, okay, so people get a little freaked out by this, this passage, so I wanted to address it because I actually think it's helpful to, to us. Be, so uh, these verses aren't contradicting one another. We just need to ask, what does blasphemy mean? And what's the main ministry of the Holy Spirit? Okay, what is blasphemy? It comes from a, a Greek word, blasphemia. Sound familiar? So, yeah, the, the translators just decided not to translate it here for some reason, which is a pet peeve of mine. But they do translate it in other places. And, and there you will find it, say, reviling or contradicting or despising or rejecting. Okay, so if you're reviling, contradicting, despising, rejecting the Holy Spirit, then you won't be open to his work. And what is that work? John 16 says it very clearly. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So if you're reviling and contradicting and rejecting the conviction of sin, then you'll never repent. And Jesus makes it very clear in in what we've seen in Mark so far that the path to forgiveness is repentance. So of course you won't receive forgiveness if you're rejecting the means of forgiveness. Rejecting the one who leads you to repent. And that's what Jesus is saying. So some, of, some people worry if they've committed this sin. But if you find in yourself that you're able to repent of sin, then you've not committed this. Don't be worried. But I will say, if you find in yourself a hardness, a revulsion to the idea that someone would dare call you to change your ways and align yourself with a new king, then you do have reason to fear. But maybe that fear is God's grace to you. That maybe you yet can repent and turn to Jesus so that you no longer need to fear. Join this new people that Jesus is forming under his reign. A new community of people who are continually repenting. Who are continually recognizing their imperfection and their need and being open and honest about it and realigning themselves with King Jesus. This new people Jesus is forming is a repenting community. And repentance, it's, it's one, to me, it's one of the most beautiful words to describe how the truth about Jesus becomes a lived experience for me personally that's transforming me. Repentance is the idea of turning. And I used to think of it as a harsh, demanding command, like turn, you know. But like as I've matured, I see the mercy in it. I, because in Proverbs, it says there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. And Jesus sees us on that path that we think is fine, but he knows it's leading to death. And he says to us, you're on a path that will destroy you, and I love you. So turn off that path and follow me. See, Jesus asks us to entertain something about ourselves. He asks you to entertain something about yourself, that that you are so broken and in such dire need of help and rescue that it can only come from outside of yourself. And he wants to give you that rescue. He wants to rescue you. He wants to give us forgiveness and life. He wants us to experience true blessedness and true flourishing. So he calls us to repent. To turn from our path of sin and selfishness and turn toward God. You're never just turning away from something. You're always turning to something. So we turn to faith and trust in our Lord Jesus. 
I turn, as I turn from this other way of life, I turn and I grab on and trust to Jesus, and I trust that the way he leads me in is better. I have to believe that. And for some of you, you've done this maybe once, a long time ago, and you're kind of living off the fumes of that experience. So you need to remind yourself that this is not just a one-time thing. There's still quite a few dark corners of your heart if you're being honest with yourself. And there's still a lot of repenting yet to be done. And if we are a part of a community where Jesus says he is present and really with us to confront us, with, and he's with us through his spirit and the scriptures and his people, and he's challenging us and leading us, then this is not just a one-time thing. It can't be. It's something that happens daily as his spirit searches our hearts and convicts us. Some people have called this perpetual conversion. I like that. We're perpetually turning from the dead-end way that we were on and towards the way everlasting. Which is from Psalm 139, where King David prays, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is our continual prayer. And being led in this way everlasting is what Jesus is talking about when he calls us to follow him. When he says in verse 35 that his family are those who do the will of God, Jesus is calling us to a new way of being human, to a new path. Jesus, the compassionate king, is calling you this morning, calling you to be with him, in relationship, and to live sent as his letter of love. He wants to free you and welcome you as his family. He lovingly calls you to repent and and to turn from your dead-end path and follow him on the way everlasting. Let's pray. Our Holy Father, We are grateful for your grace through your Son and adopting us into your family and letting us partner with you in your mission. I thank you for the victory of the cross to free us and bring us into a new kingdom of love. And I pray that you continue to lovingly lead all of us into repentance from sin and selfishness and toward you and your good and true way of life. I pray this in the name of King Jesus. Amen.